the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about the Southern Baptist Convention and transparency. We're going to discuss cancel culture, and then we're joined by Bob Smetana, religion writer at Religion News Service. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Happy Thursday. Glad to have you with us today. Kind of the big news. All right. The big news of the week there was what we talked about yesterday, the election of the new president, uh, Ed Litton, and what that meant. But another one of our friends who writes there, uh, Kate Shellnut, she then wrote about what happened yesterday. And just she wrote this Southern Baptist approved major investigation into abuse response that pastors speaking on behalf of victims pushed for a task force to direct inquiry into the executive committee. So here's the background, right? There's years and years and years of, of sexual abuse allegations. And the question is not only are we going to, are the Southern Baptists going to investigate and kind of try to do the healing and ask the hard questions, Mm -hmm. but who's going to lead that investigation Uh, and abuse survivors, as well as many pastors we're pushing for an outside third party investigator, an outside independent inquiry uh, to come in and do that. While the executive committee was kind of saying, no, we'll handle it. Like, we'll take care of it. And people were like, well, there's a real conflict of interest yeah, there. That right. doesn't seem to be the way to go. And so outside of who's going to be the president of the Southern Baptist Convention going in, this was kind of the most watched issue, I would say, the most watched development and what I would say in a uh, in an uh, encouraging, in my opinion, mm-hmm. move yesterday, the the idea of uh, the motion for a third party through a, an organization called Guideposts uh, not only passed, but it passed overwhelmingly. Uh, it passed by a large margin, and so now uh, this Guidepost Solutions is going to run an independent inquiry. Uh, and and they will then report back to the executive committee as opposed to the executive committee running it itself. Aubrey, right. this feels like a big deal. You and I talked about this over the last couple of days. Yeah. Like this was one of those of all the multiple crossroad moments coming uh, to pass this week in Nashville for the Southern Baptist. This was a big one, and I would assume you agree. This feels like an encouraging result. Oh, I am so encouraged. And, you know, I'll just put my cards on the table. I have a very good friend who is actually one of the women whose name comes up quite a bit. I haven't said this on the show before, but she she said I could say. Um, And I know like she was weeping yesterday. And so I feel so encouraged that that the SBC is taking this step for the uh, for the victims, for the organization. And you know what? This week, I, I kind of went into this week cynical and a little bit scared, like what's going right. to happen. And I am so grateful. Like it feels like the SBC, SBC showed up in a really, really powerful way, wanting to do the right thing. Um, 
And again, the the uh, new president, I feel like that was hopeful. And then this decision mm-hmm. feels like another really hopeful, really encouraging move. So I am praising God, honestly. This is a great, great decision because now it just speaks of integrity. And I think for the watching world, it also sends a really good message. Like we are no longer going to try. We're, we're going to be, we're going to, yeah, I, I'm using the word integrity again, but we're going to be a church of integrity. The watching world sees that that bears witness to Jesus in a really good way. Absolutely. There was a second amendment that passed yesterday that explicitly names abuse and racism as grounds for dismissal from the Southern Baptist I Convention. Did see and so that's great. And so I think you said it well there. There there appears to have been I, I like you, neither of us, as we've said, we're not Southern Baptists, although you said you came to Christ at a Southern Baptist church. Mm-hmm. Uh, but being the largest denomination in many ways. Uh, they kind of set some groundwork for how evangelicalism is seen and how other denominations kind of go. And I went into this convention. I'm interested to hear what Bob Smetana has to say coming up because he was there. But it feels like a lot of the issues that were in elections and stuff that were real crossroads moments turned out to be what people were hoping, but unclear as to whether they would end up being, right? Yeah, I think there was some fear, like we hope these things move in this direction, but we're not sure if they actually will. And so I'm sure a lot of people are breathing some sighs of relief. Um, and, And it just feels like a renewed, I don't know, I feel a renewed sense of like, okay, Lord, you're, you're in charge here. And I know I should have felt that way either way, right? That God is sovereign and God is in control, but it certainly feels good to see that the SBC is, um, seems like really listening to the spirit of God, listening to the voice of the people and making some really good decisions. Yeah. And you can see, I, you know, neither of us are parts of denominations, but you see how people kind of. Uh, these messengers who are just people who go to SBC churches, right? They've just been sent from their churches. Really, right. you know, there's not one or two or three people directing what happens. This is really yeah. a movement of the people. And it, yeah. it was encouraging to see. Again, we're going to be joined here really soon by Bob Smetana and want to see what he has to say as he was there uh, doing it. So a, a uh, as we kind of put a bow on what is probably, in my opinion, one of the biggest stories in the church world this year to to date, uh, the Southern Baptist really kind of stepping up and saying, hey, yeah. it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult to revisit these stories for them. The easy move would have been like, hey, let's just look to the future. Let's just plow ahead. Uh, but instead, trying to learn and trying to, um, you know, give the closure to abuse victims or at least some sense of closure yeah, yeah. and to be better, to just yes. be better going forward. I yeah. think that's really encouraging. Hey. You wanted to mention real fast, yeah. today is an anniversary. Yeah. Uh, why don't you remind our people, today's a, a kind of a, a an important anniversary, uh, I would say, in, in uh, kind of the church world and what's been happening in our nation, say, over the last decade. That's right. Today's the anniversary of the Charleston church shooting in South Carolina, uh, South Carolina at Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church. I don't know if you remember, six years ago, mass shooting, definitely uh, it was a guy who, um, I, Dylan, I can't think of his last name now. Hood? Dylan Hood, I, I believe. I, yes, Dylan Hood. And he was part of a neo-Nazi group, very uh, a, a racist killing and um, devastating, devastating for these faithful people of God who invited him into their Bible study yeah. and a- absolutely devastating. Um, so uh, we just wanted to pause today and remember South Carolina, remember Charleston, remember those who were impacted. And, uh, uh, you know, again, I think, these are the moments when you go, okay, 
um, that was horrible. Let's not grow desensitized. Let's exactly. pause. Let's lift um, this city. Let's lift this community, especially the African-American community up to the Lord and ask to see a new day. Yeah, so many. I remember that when that happened, it was such a sad story. There were amazing stories of forgiveness yes. out of there that seemed oh. incomprehensible. Right. Uh, but like you said, that's a hard day for the people involved today. And so I think it's important to remember. And as you said, not become desensitized. So that's it, six years ago today. And uh, we'll keep those people in our thoughts. Well, coming up next, Bob Smetana, veteran religion writer and national reporter for the Religion News Service. He's been down in Nashville all week at the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, we're going to talk to Bob next about what happened. So looking back, what occurred and what does he see this meaning for the future uh, as particularly of the Southern Baptist Convention? Bob's going to join us next year on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. If you've been with us this week, you know one of the things we've spent, Aubrey and I, a lot of time talking about is the happenings down in Nashville this week at the Southern Baptist Convention. And one of the people, Aubrey, I would say that we hung on very mm-hmm. much, uh, his writing, his tweets. You know, we talked about our friend Kate Shellnut and others. Uh, but somebody that we were really dialed in with was Bob Smetana. Bob is a veteran religion writer and national reporter for Religion News Service. And Bob, after all he's done this week, Aubrey, is kind enough to so spend nice. some time with us here on The Common Good. So, Bob, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, great. Glad to be here. Hey, uh, before we get into all that's happened, and as we said, you've got to be exhausted from all that's been going on this week. But before we do that, just remind our people, who are you? Just introduce yourself to our audience again. Sure. I'm a national reporter for Religion News Service. I've been writing about religion for a living since 1999, which so since the last millennium. <laughs> uh, I was the uh, used to be uh, the religion reporter here in uh, Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, now I'm an RNS, and uh, my wife and I just moved to uh, Woodstock, Illinois. Good old Woodstock, Illinois. All right. (laughs) Well, Bob, like we said, you have been at the Southern Baptist Convention this week, and Brian and I have been talking about it. And this is a really broad question I'm going to throw at you, so feel free to answer this however you want to. But seems like some surprising decisions were made, maybe some decisions people wanted, but we're actually not sure if it would happen. Why don't you just give us a rundown? What happened this week? Sure. Well, first of all, this was the biggest meeting they've had since the 1990s. Wow. About 50,000 messengers. And a messenger is like a, basically a representative of a local church. Mm. There were, I think just over 20,000 people total here. So it was a huge meeting. Um, there was a contested presidential race. Uh, there were lots of concerns about abuse, uh, lots of concerns about how the convention is dealing with race. Uh, there was a lot of tension ahead of time. So there was um, one of the big surprising things is there have been some concerns about how the denomination has handled uh, sexual abuse and especially mm-hmm. how their executive committee, which is basically the kind of the administrative arm of the SBC, has handled uh, uh, allegations of abuse and, and, um, and their relationships with abuse survivors. And so the uh, there have been a lot of controversy over that. The actual executive committee was going to have a – uh, they'd hired a, a group to do an independent review, and the messenger said loud and clear, no, hmm. you, we're going to appoint a task force that's going to oversee the review and decide how much gets reviewed, and it's, we're going to be in charge of it because they didn't feel like the executive committee could um, 
be in charge of a review of its own actions. Right. So that was powerful. And uh, wow. there's lots of, you know, this is the biggest business meeting in the world. So if you've ever been to a <laughs> business meeting or a nonprofit business meeting, this is that with 20,000. With- <laughs> so lots of parliamentary stuff, but basically the, you know, there was an, uh, a decision made to refer that to the executive committee and not deal with it. And the, the delegate said, no, we're going to deal with it. And we're going to set it. We're going to be in charge of how this is handled. So that was a surprise. Wow. I think, there was a surprise winner in a presidential race. Uh, Al Mohler, who had, who many folks know is the, the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and kind of a pillar in the SBC, was running. Uh, a Baptist pastor named Mike Stone, who was a part of something called the Conservative Baptist Network, which is very critical of the leadership of the SBC. He was running. And the third pastor named Ed Litton from Alabama, who's – little less known, uh, known mostly for working on racial reconciliation. And in a squeaker, he won. He won by about 500 votes with wow. 50% of the vote. So uh, that was a surprise. He was a surprise kind of dark horse candidate. Um, you know, I think I think uh, there was passion. And this. I think the old, one of the overwhelming things is that folks uh, are concerned about sexual abuse and did not like the way it was being handled. The nomination wanted people to know that. Hmm. And then I think there was a rigorous debate over issues of how do we deal with racism and how do we deal with cultural change? Uh, and you know, they, they, they actually have a new resolution about racism that just came out. So it was, uh, it was passionate. It was, uh, divided in some ways. You know, the, the, the race was 52 48. So that's not a mandate. Right. But, right. Uh, there's also a very nice moment when, uh, Dr. Ed Litton, who's the new, um, or, or Pastor Ed Litton, the new president, Got up when Al Mohler after he after Mohler had lost and was giving Mohler had to give a report from the seminary and uh, Litton got up and uh, said you know just praised Mohler and thanked him for his service to the seminary and uh, Mohler congratulated Litton. Wow. It was a very nice moment of people trying to be gracious in public. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Uh, and you got to spend some time this morning with Ed Litton. So that, as we said, Aubrey and I have been talking a lot about this, where it felt like kind of a crossroads. It felt kind of like uh, the, the convention could go one way or the other. Uh, and so tell us a little bit more about Ed Litton and what, what can people expect of the Southern Baptist Convention going forward with him leading it? So Litton is, as I said, he's very well known for his um, work on racial reconciliation in Mobile, Alabama. And uh, that's a very, he was actually um, nominated by Fred Luter, who uh, was uh, the first black president of the SBC and still very popular. And in fact, he had a great speech. Basically, he said, trust Fred, vote for Ed. Which brought- <laughs> <laughs> he's, a, he's a very beloved figure. And so uh, uh, in among African-American pastors. So I think the conversation, there'll be very much an openness to talking about race and racism Um I think there will also be uh, – he's a little more soft-spoken, less bombastic hmm. than sometimes pastors are. He's, his, he's, he's a, his church is a good size, about 1,300 people in worship, but not a giant megachurch. Um, he's also a person who's got a lot of personal – who's seen a lot of personal uh, tragedy. Uh, he grew up and has seen a lot of uh, grace in his life. So he grew up in an alcoholic home. Wow. Was uh, you know the family was kind of crumbling, and they met a Southern Baptist pastor who helped his dad uh, find Jesus, and that changed the whole trajectory of the family's lives. And wow. then he became a pastor. And then um, a number of years ago, his wife was killed in a car wreck, mm. and, uh, and his wife, his his second wife Kathy, her husband was killed in a car wreck. Wow! So wow! He's, he's had a lot of who's seen both kind of 
you know, this kind of the way faith can change your life and how faith deals, helps you when you are in struggle. So mm. that kind of um, personal tragedy shaped his life. He's very compassionate, very strong. I mean, he's, he has, is, I mean, there are no moderates in the Southern Baptist. Right, <laughs> right. They're all conservative. Yeah. You know, uh, he's very conservative about theology and politics. He's also willing to talk to other folks and, um, he wants to say, if we all believe the same things, then we can get along. He has kind of a little more broad understanding that we can disagree on how to apply our theology and still work together on mission. Good. Where yeah. there are opponents who say, no, if you don't apply your theology in this other way, it's more restrictive. So that, mm-hmm. that was the process. So we're going to be more restrictive both in our application of theology and our and in the kind of voices and topics we talk about, are we going to be more open to interacting with the world? Yeah, yeah, that's really good. Again, Bob Smetana, veteran religion writer and national reporter for Religion News Service. Uh, he spent all week down in Nashville at the Southern Baptist Convention. This, uh, as he called it, the biggest business meeting you're going to be a part of. And so <laughs> got to interview the new SBC president, Ed Litton, this morning. Uh, and so Bob has kind of given us a firsthand take of what's going on. You know, you talked earlier about the election for the new president of the Southern Baptist. So Ed Litton is the new president. But there was also this conservative Baptist network uh, that's kind of risen up. And, and you described it well. It was a very close vote. It was very split. That In many ways, the convention is, you know, kind of 50-50. I think you said 52-48. It's somewhat split. And so I wonder going forward, Uh, Are you hopeful that there's going to be unity within this huge denomination within the Southern Baptist Convention or will it continue to be divided? What do you think happens as everybody leaves Nashville now and goes back to their churches? Um, I think it's going to be there is a mixture. I think Lytton is somebody everyone knows that there are divisions and Lytton is a person who spent a lot of time working on reconciliation. And so I think his approach is going to be he called himself a bridge builder Mm. in his spirit. in his um, post-election press conference, he has a very kind of uh, engaging personality to, to listen to other folks. And he's a minister. He said he's uh, – I want to talk to him this morning. He's a pastor at heart. Mm. Wow. Pastor, um, not just a preacher. So, there, you know, Southern Baptists, uh, their pastors tend to be, if I were to characterize them, more preachers than pastoral. Yeah, yeah. And the kind of the pastoral care, those kind of things. And his strength, I think he's a good preacher, but he also has the strength of someone who's been through a lot, know, has spent a lot of time thinking he doesn't, you know, learning about pain, mm. experienced a lot of pain, mm. uh, has done a lot of work on racial reconciliation, mobile, is, doesn't think he knows all the answers. And so I think he's going to be willing to do this. I think there are some folks who are not going to trust him. I think the, the CBN, the CBN did, you know, in their social media to their credit was uh, saying, we're going to pray for him. You know, he won. There's no, there's no, um, there's no doubt about the outcome, mm-hmm. right? And I think everyone, you know, the way the SSBC works, the messengers vote, and they abide by what the messengers say. And in this case, he's the president. So I think there's going to be, I think there's still going to be divides. The country's divided. I think he's going to be. I think if, if Mike Stone had won, I think there'd been much more saying we're going to do these things and we're going to change a lot of things. Yeah, and our yeah. side is right. Mm. Um, I think Ed is is more of a going to engage everyone. Uh, and Mr. Being a pastor, Stone is a pastor. He he believes that he's doing what's right for the convention. 
I, you know, I just think that his viewpoint was a viewpoint to say uh, a little more restrictive, a little more kind of the- pure of who the Baptists are. Yeah. And, and so I think, I think, I don't know, he's much of, as much of a bridge builder. I don't know him. Mm-hmm. So I think that, um, I think there is a kind of a sense that, hey, we spoke, I think they, and we, I think they did send a message to the leadership that we're not happy about the way you are acting. Hmm. So stop it. Hmm. So I think, I think everyone will be watching. What does the executive committee, what, what do the institutional leaders do? Um, I think they're all understanding too that as the country's changing uh, and the racial makeup of the country's changing, we're yeah. having discussions about race and the role of you know women and all these mm-hmm. things that they're going to have to engage with that and talk about it. And that it, it makes a lot of people uncomfortable. How do we do that? Yeah. And I think everyone knows, I think everyone here, the leadership that knows, okay, people are uneasy and they're going to need to be listened to. And uh, actually one, one of the, the really kind of moving points uh, or important points was there was a, uh, so I told, I, we spoke earlier about this kind of uh, investigation on abuse or review of abuse. There's a concern that the, the executive committee, which is their administrative arm, had mishandled abuse claims. Yeah. And the executive committee was going to had hired someone to review them and was going to be in charge of the review. And the messenger said, no, we're going to appoint a task force. The president will appoint a task force. They'll be in charge. And an external, you know, this external group of Baptists is going to look at you. And in the middle of that debate over that, whether or not to do that, um, the head of the executive committee, Ronnie Floyd, got up and said, we hear you. We, you know, this will make us stronger. So they didn't oppose it. I think at first they had been opposed to it. Uh, losing control of the review. But I think they heard the messengers and said, okay, we hear you. We thought this was the right decision, but you speak and you're in charge. Mm. Yeah. And I think there was a, you know, a sense of they're going to, uh, even if they, if they disagreed, they were going to honor the will of the messengers. Now gotcha. we'll see. If that. So that's going to be the thing. You know, I think it's like America, SBC is facing all the problems that every church in America is facing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, plus they have declining numbers. So they had a whole, uh, what got lost in this is they have a whole, um, Trident's new emphasis called Vision 2025 about doing more evangelism. I think there is a sense in the room that that's great. We need to do that. But we can't do that if we don't have trust with one another. Mm. Yeah. We have to deal with these issues and get some trust going on Mm. here. You can't say we're going to be united. You can't pretend we're united when we're not. Yeah. So I think that's, um, you know, these, there have been some steps to say we're going to be in, um, we're going to take care of these things. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we'll see. That's great. And then, Bob, with just a couple of minutes that we have left, do you, I mean, obviously, this is besides Catholicism, this is one of the largest denominations in America. So although it feels like maybe this is happening in a bubble, this isn't. I mean, the SBC is very influential throughout the church in America. Going forward from your perspective, what are some of the ripple effects of this week that will, you know, form or influence other churches? Yeah, I think I think, well, I think if you're an institutional leader, denominational leader uh, and you don't, you know, I think you're going to be watching how they did this, that people are unhappy and you should be paying attention. I think that the general, you know, kind of countries mistrust of institutions, uh, is also affecting churches and pastors. I think um, that the there are going to be divided elections, divisions, and I yeah. think that the way people handle those. I think people watch the way these folks handle this and say, "Okay, how are we handling divisions?" And I think the 
they're going to have to deal with, you know, a lot of this was driven by social media. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So the fact that uh, Pastor Lytton was saying this morning, he's going to have to prepare the people in his church for the kind of onslaught of social media. Oh, wow. So I think that's the, I think the, um, and that some of the social media discussion is reflecting unease among people and real yeah. concerns. And I think that, that listening to um, the concerns of your people and even if it's on social media and angry that behind that anger and discontent content is a real concern and unease and that they should pay attention to it. And I think this also, the, I, I do think that in this case, there's not, there, there is no, at least among Southern Baptists this week, very little, um, this real concern that there is sexual abuse out there. It has happened among us. This is unacceptable right. and it's acceptable for us not to be compassionate to folks. That's, and that's right. really um, because since the early 2000s, there have been sexual abuse survivors and advocates asking the Southern Baptists to take more action mm-hmm. at the national level. And there's been a resistance because the SBC, the way it works is that the churches are in charge. They're an inverted period. Churches are in charge. Messengers in charge. And there's a very lean administrative machine. And the, and the national leaders can't tell churches what to do. That's right. Um, but And that has led people to say, well, we can't do anything. And mm. I think a uh, sense that no. You can do something, and you have to, when you find out about things, pay attention to this, and we have to. So they have thrown out churches out of the denomination now if, if they have mishandled, if they've had sexual abuse and not handled it well. Not, you know, not, yeah. not reported to police, not cared for victims. If they've been kind of cover-ups, that's not going to be tolerated. I think there's a real concern of, um, and there's a real concern that racism is bad, mm-hmm. and that's still around. And whether we, you know, use the term CRT or systematic racism, that that there is still racial divide in the country and in the church. And that is a terrible thing that has to be dealt with. That's right. Absolutely. Bob, this has been so helpful. I know you've got so much going on. We really appreciate all the writing you've done this week, the tweeting. People can follow you at Bob Smetana. That's S-M-I-E-T-A-N-A at Bob Smetana. Uh, He's a great follow on Twitter. You can also read his work at religionnews.com. Again, Bob Smetana is a veteran religion writer and national reporter for the Religion News Service. Bob, thanks so much for the generosity of your time. We look forward to have you on again sometime. Great to be with you. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Hope that you're having a great day. All right, Aubrey, it feels like something we used to talk about a lot. I remember when Ian was on the show with me, and and especially back then, this idea of cancel culture. Right. um, Which is, I don't know, I don't even think that was a phrase five, ten years ago, but it is certainly part of our vernacular now. And, And the basic idea of cancel culture is somebody says something, somebody does something, uh, something from their past comes out that is, um, you know, objectionable yes. or sometimes criminal. You yep. know, there's that spectrum and they are canceled. They are yep. no longer, you know, whether it be put in movies or a pastor or just listened to at all. They kind of go away. And uh, there's kind of this sliding scale as to, and I think our culture is really struggling with it, especially 
in the age of Twitter and Facebook and such as to what gets somebody canceled. And that was uh, what comedian Kevin Hart kind of went out, uh, went off about yesterday in an interview uh, with the British Sunday Times. Uh, he says this. If somebody has done something truly damaging, then absolutely a consequence should be attached. But when you just talk about nonsense, when you're talking, someone said they need to be taken down. He said, shut the bleep up. What are you talking about? When did we get to a point where life was supposed to be perfect? This is what Mm. I want you to hear. He said, where people were supposed to operate perfectly all the time. I don't understand. I don't expect perfection from my kids. I don't expect it from my wife, friends, Mm. employees, because last I checked, the only way you grow up, uh, I don't know a kid uh, who hasn't messed up or done something yeah. dumb. I've been canceled, he says, three or four times. Never bothered. If you allow it to have an effect on you, it will. Personally, that's not how I operate. He goes on to talk about everybody being human. People make mistakes. And so, <coughs> excuse me, I think he's in an interesting spot as a comedian because kind of the point of a comedian is to kind of. Yeah. You know, kind of put line. Yes. Yes. uh, And and that kind of stuff. But where do you how do you process this idea of cancel culture? I think what he said is very interesting here about, you know, you got to allow people the ability to make mistakes. But he also acknowledged there are time for consequences. There are certain things I think he's arguing right now culturally. Not that there shouldn't be a bar, but the, but that the bar's too low, hmm. like uh, for what gets people canceled. So, where how, how do you process this? Yeah, I, I uh, it's it's a weird thing to watch, and I feel like my own opinion about cancel culture kind of changes depending on what's being canceled. I'll just yeah. be honest, but it does like it 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 kind of strikes me like a it's a Matthew seven three moment for the whole world right like you're pointing out the speck in your brother's eye but meanwhile you've got like a whole freaking log in yours (laughs) and i think that's what i okay so i don't like that i don't like that we're sort of the arbiters of perfection and we're like they did this one thing 10 years ago therefore never can they do anything again like i just don't think that's realistic I don't think it's fair. I don't think that anyone but God has the right to do that because none of us are perfect. I also think we all, I, I mean, I don't want to be judged on what I did when I was a teenager. You know what I mean? Like we're all, no one wants to be judged by their worst moments. And we all, I hope are growing and changing and transforming and different now than we were 10 years ago. Um, I do think 100% there is a place for deplatforming people, mm-hmm. especially if they're in positions of leadership around the church or leadership in um, where they have some influence and some power. If they're being criminal, if they are blatantly being abusers, exploiters, uh, if they're if they're not aware of the harm that they're causing. I mean, I think you know. We we saw this with uh, the actress from The Office. You, we talked about mm-hmm. her a couple of weeks mm-hmm. ago, um, and the actress from Kimmy Schmidt. I, I'm blanking on her name right now. Ellie uh, Ellie Klemper. Thank you. That you know she was 
in what a debutante ball back when she was 16. It was 13. Yes, 13. 13. Yes. Somehow it was connected to someone with the KKK. Obviously, a 13 year old doesn't realize that she's doing that. She learned from that. She apologized. I think then you move on. Like right. if she were to stand there and say, no, I'm for the KKK. Well, then you deplatform her. <laughs> then you then you say, no, sorry. But she's obviously not that same 13 year old girl who's naively walking into a situation like that anymore. And I, I just I feel like it speaks of I don't know, we need more grace for one another. Mm. We need some like acknowledgement that none of us are perfect. Simultaneously, this is where I think I get like uh mixed feelings in my own soul. Simultaneously, there are situations that are so egregious that it is not okay for that person, whoever it is, to continue to have a microphone or a yeah. stage or a book deal or a whatever because they're causing so much harm to other people. Well, let me ask you. I think you bring up the really interesting point. You and I deal with churches. That's kind yeah. of our thing. Yeah. Uh, and we have seen many, many uh, – how many many's can I put here? Church leaders, pastors uh, do things – that cause them to lose their job, lose their ministry or whatever else. Yeah. And it's always interesting then the conversation about uh, when should they be back to lead again? Should they ever be back to lead again? Uh, what does uh, and so how do you wrestle with that? I know it's a little bit of a case by case basis, depending on what people do. Uh, but generally speaking, right, we know that pastors tend to lose their their big pulpits yeah. for uh, for sinful reasons. Right. You know? Right. Uh, so how do you what's kind of your perspective on, OK, this pastor has has uh, been off, they've been gone enough. They've done enough work that now they can be back on. Or is it kind of once you drop that ball, you could be restored to the church, but you don't ever need to be restored to the pastorate. You don't ever need to be restored to the stage, if you will. Yeah, I mean, I do think, again, it's so hard to say without knowing the situation like, a, you know, this is a this is kind of an outlier. So I hate to throw this name out, but like a Ravi Zacharias, where, I mean, years and years of predatorial criminal abuse against women, uh, allegedly rape. I mean, just horrible, horrible things. Uh, no, like, even if he does the did I, this is not fair because he's Understood. passed, but even Understood. if he did the work, got to counseling. Uh, healed his family life. No, like you don't become a pastor again. You're not put in a position of leadership again. Does that mean you aren't restored relationally to the church? Of course you're restored relationally to the church. Does that mean you're not, mm -hmm. you, know, you know, I mean, I, sometimes I feel like why does the end goal have to be you're back in the pulpit? That's right. Can't the end goal being you're making restoration before the Lord, before the people you harmed, your loved ones, your family, your community, and that's enough. Mm -hmm. um, and again, it's a case by case situation, but I, I mean, obviously we see throughout scripture again and again, and again, you think about Peter, that the Lord restored him specifically to ministry. Um, but we know that Peter wasn't like exploiting women, you know, so mm -hmm. that I, I don't know. It's complicated. That's it how is. I feel. What do you think, Brian? I think the huge red flag for me, uh, and there's a list of, of people that we can discuss who this is the case for. Uh, the big red flag for me is when there is no time at all taken. There seems to be no yes. restoration. There yes. seems to be, okay, I did, this kind of blew up. So I'm going to go there and start again. Or I'm going to, then you go, okay, no, no, the same problem that manifested itself over there is going to manifest itself over here. It right. might look different. It might take some time. Uh, I think. 
uh, that pastors specifically need to get into some sort of restorative process, a private restorative process there in public. Yeah. Uh, and that it needs to uh, err on the side of um, of slow before ever getting back in a pulpit. And there needs yeah. to be great guidelines put in along the way. And that I do think there are certain things that go, you know what, that just it's just not going to happen. Like yeah. you can, we want you to be a functioning member of the church, but you don't need to lead. You don't yeah. need to be preaching. Uh, but sadly, something that our, um, I would say, uh, I think our culture in general is too fast to cancel, mm-hmm. but I think our church culture is too slow to. <laughs> interesting. You might uh, be really right about that, Brian. That's it really interesting. Feels like we've got our stars that we want to quickly put back up mm. and it causes problems over and over again. Wow. So, uh, thought that was interesting and uh, really something the church always, especially kind of the celebrity church culture, really, really needs to wrestle with. Well, coming up next, uh, an interesting tweet that quoted something that Rick Warren said about two huge lies that our culture has accepted. We're going to discuss those words from Rick Warren next here on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Coming up this hour, what are two lies that our culture has accepted? And we're joined by Paul Batura, the Vice President of Communications for Focus on the Family. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good on this Thursday afternoon. It's summer. It's beautiful outside. We're like almost to the weekend. It's almost Father's Day. Are you doing anything yes. special for Father's Day, Brian? So depending on how my son's baseball team does, there might be baseball games oh, on Father's Day. Okay. But it's so funny. Carrie asked me that question yesterday. She's like, what do you want to do for Father's Day? And I'm like, I don't know. Like, <laughs> can we just like watch some golf and hang out in the backyard? And just I, I don't have real any real expectations. I'm like, should I have expectations? But we shall see. What are you guys doing for Kevin? Uh, so K- Kevin bought himself a triathlon bike a while ago and we kind of said, okay, this is your father's day. It, so as far as gifts were covered, we'll probably, I don't know. We'll probably go visit his family. He'll, gotcha. he'll, he'll probably want to ride that bike. You know, I mean, <laughs> a father's it's kind day of ride. a low key day for there us. You go. There yeah. You go. Yeah. Which he's good with. Good. Good. Well, um, so we all know. I would think who Rick Warren is, longtime pastor, founder of Saddleback Church, author of the wildly popular Purpose Driven Life. He actually has a show on AM 1160. We feel like he's a friend from afar. You've spent some time with Rick Brian, so he's at least a friend of yours. Nothing else. Um, He, uh, someone else actually quoted something he said. So this is uh, Matt Smethurst. quoting Rick Warren, tweeting Rick Warren, but I thought this was so interesting and I I wanted us to talk about it. So here's the Rick Warren quote. Our culture has accepted two lies. One, if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear or hate them. And two, to love someone means you agree with everything they believe or do. Both are nonsense. You don't have to comp- you don't have to compromise convictions to be compassionate. Mm. So, um, Brian, break those down for me. What do you think about those? Yeah, first of all, I don't think Rick Warren knows that he's my friend, but I like to count him as one <laughs> quote unquote friend of Brian <laughs> Rick Warren. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those stealth friendships because we spent one time together. Yes, <laughs> he's 
that's my best friend. Absolutely. Me and Rick, it's a purpose-driven relationship. Yes. <laughs> uh, so it's really interesting. I actually read this. It's funny the way your and mine's work, you and mine's minds work. That made no sense. How we think about things, because I saw this tweet this morning too and was like, we should talk about that oh, on the show. Oh, nice. Oh, nice. And then you added up. Uh, the number, the first one there is, I think, what the church struggles with is, and I think the second one is our culture. I think there, this actually kind of defines it. I think too often in the church, it's, hey, if I disagree with somebody, they're now my enemy, right? Yes. Culture. Yes. It's, it's, especially culturally, like kind of the hot button culture issues, mm-hmm. right? Like this isn't necessarily even like minor theological issues in the church, but it could be huge theological issues, right? This person's a Muslim and I'm a Christian or whatever else it might be. But also when it comes to cultural issues like LGBTQ stuff right. or uh, whatever, you know, politics, you're a Democrat, I'm a Republican, whatever right. else it might be. I think uh, the church has this reputation because it's often true of people in the church that if I disagree with what you're doing, you are now my enemy. I have to speak against you. Yeah. I, I'm kind of adversarial towards you. Yeah. The second one, I think, is increasingly the way that our culture reacts to anything hmm. that if if you say that you love me, per- Christian, right, you say that you love me then you have to agree with everything that I say. You have to be, um, yeah. you know, quote unquote, tolerant of everything. And therefore, we get put into a bind when we say, well, I, I don't agree with what you're saying, but I still love you. And then that person says, well, that's not very loving. You know, right. you can't love me right. and not agree with everything I say. And I think a lot of us within the church who want to love our neighbors, who want to be seen as compassionate, mm-hmm. who want to be for the community. I do think that becomes a real struggle because you see it in churches all around us that either you dig your heels in and you become known as fundamentalist and not right. loving. Right. Or you start uh, you start kind of. um fudging on some of your uh, your beliefs and going, ah, well, is it really that big a deal? I want to be known as loving. Yeah. You know? So therefore, and Rick Warren saying, no, the answer is in the middle of these two, that you don't need to compromise your convictions. You can stand for something and still be loving with people who disagree with you. Now, there is a caveat there. Uh, that does not guarantee that they're going to accept that. <laughs> right. You can't, yes, that is you, such a good point, Brian. Thanks. You can't control how other people react. But I do think as Christians, as Christ followers, our tact can't be, I will only love those who agree with me and I will mm-hmm. see as enemies the mm-hmm. other. I think Rick Warren is onto a really important point here. Uh, that's really interesting. Can I ask you another question? You're not a therapist, so this is maybe a little unfair that I'm like, I'm going to ask you a psychological question. But why do you think that our instinct is fear or hate when we disagree with someone's lifestyle? Like, and again, that's especially, I guess I'm asking that question of Christians. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that's our go to mode of operation? Mm, that's a great question. I think uh, the first thing that jumps to mind for me is uh, that that is often how we are also met, right? Like, okay, mm. I don't believe X, you know, cult, whatever that issue is. Yeah. And we are met with, you're a this, you're intolerant, you're this. And what do you normally do? Uh, 
uh, what do you normally do? You, you normally push back when when you're pushed against. Yeah, you kind of fight back. Sure, that's sure. Not, I'll grant you, people. That's not what Jesus did. Yeah, <laughs> but right. That's a natural tendency. So that is one. And two, I think it, it becomes really hard not to look at certain tide, uh, tides or, or ways within our culture and not go, my goodness, we're losing our culture. What about our mm. kids? And you want to hold on tight and fight harder. I understand that. I feel that within me. And so I think that's where we get defensive. That's where we kind of start to push back. Uh, and, and, and I, I think that's where it comes from. Again, that's not the way of Jesus, but right. I would say – uh, that's probably where it comes from. Where, where where do you think it comes from? Yeah, I I mean I you know it it feels like I mean the obvious answer is sin, right? But mm-hmm. there is something I I don't know what it is if it's self preservation, it, why we feel the need to go to fear just because someone is different, or why we feel the need to go to hate. Like I and I I mean I say this about myself too. I wish my instinct was to go to like a kind curiosity, you know, like yeah. oh. Oh, you're different than me. Oh, you, th- your lifestyle is different than mine. Oh, that's not my experience. Tell me more about that. Again, that doesn't mean I'm going to compromise what I believe to be, you know, God's standards for things. Um, but it, I wish that uh, we sort of welcomed one another. And I say this about the world to Christians too. Like, let's welcome one another with sort of a kind, compassionate curiosity and begin to build some bridges because ultimately we know this. Once you're in a relationship with mm-hmm. someone, like a true friendship, sitting across the dinner table with someone who disagrees with you. Now, you may disagree. There may be heated conflict, but it's so much more difficult to hate or be afraid of someone that you're sitting across the table with, right? That's right. Uh, you're sharing a meal together. They have a human body. You have a human body. They have pain. You have pain. And and your your common humanity sort of breaks I think that um, that boundary that that can happen so easily when you're online or when you don't actually know someone. And um, I also think we're so complicated, aren't we? Like, I think we we tend to want to villainize people, but no one is only one thing. So suddenly you may disagree with someone's politics, right? If you're a, if you're a Republican, you may disagree with Democrats and you may think they're villains or vice versa. But then you're sitting around having coffee with them and you're like, oh, wait, exactly. <laughs> I put them in this one box. But actually, we agree on this thing or actually we really care similarly about this thing. Or So anyway, I, I, this is a good word for all of us. From Rick Warren, let's love people. We don't have to believe everything they do. We don't have to compromise our convictions, but we can greet one another with love. We thought that was an important conversation to have today. Mm -hmm. Well, coming up next, how does adoption change the world? This will be a great talk with Father's Day coming up. We're talking with Paul Batura from Focus on the Family about adoption and more on The Common Good. You're listening to AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us uh, as we kind of look towards Father's Day. Father's Day is coming this weekend, and we thought with it being Father's Day, uh, we wanted to talk about dads and also adoptive dads, and that we couldn't think of anyone better to talk to than the Vice President of Communications at Focus on the Family, that being Paul Batura. Paul, how are you doing today? 
I'm doing great, Brian and Aubrey. Nice to be with you. Yeah, Paul's the author of several books, uh, including Chosen for Greatness, How Adoption Changes the World. So I'd love to start there, Paul. Not just, uh, you know, usually we have you introduce yourself, but I'd love for you to tell your story, the story of your family uh, as we kind of look towards Father's Day. Well, Brian, thank you. It's good to be with you again. And um, yeah, our story starts, I think, like a lot of adoptive families. My wife, Julie, and I were married. We were eager to start a family. We were uh, excited at the prospect. And then we just had miscarriage after miscarriage Mm -hmm. and disappointments. And it was a real heartache. And um, my wife was open to adoption a lot sooner than I was. But I just was insecure about it. I was nervous about it. And um, it took a friend prompting um, with an opportunity to really kind of push the issue. And I'm so glad they did. And my wife was right all along and we kind of jumped into it. And now almost 16 years later, uh, we have three boys. They're now 15, 10 and nine. Mm. (laughs) And um, all three from different families, from very different stories, different states, but now one family. And so we're just so grateful. And it's a it's a great joy. And and uh, nothing gives us more joy than to talk about adoption and to encourage other people if they feel that nudge from the Lord Mm -hmm. to pursue it. Oh, that's wonderful. So, Paul, the name of your book, as Brian said, is Chosen for Greatness, How Adoption Changes the World. And I would just love to hear a little bit about the book itself and how does adoption change the world? You know, Aubrey, it changes everybody. And most people, if they don't have adoption in their family, if it hasn't really impacted them personally, they may not think it does, but it really does. And this kind of became apparent to me early on in the journey. Um, Dr. Dobson, who started Focus on the Family, and I worked for him as a research and writer, he told me early on, he said, make sure your kids know that they were adopted from the very beginning, even before Mm. they know what adoption means. Mm. And so we started that process and practice, and we would tell them stories about well-known adoptees, um, people who are in history, because we were trying to just normalize it and make sure that they recognized that it wasn't that unusual. It may not be the norm, but it was not that unusual. I think in some ways we almost did too good of a job because they almost, I think some of them thought everybody was adopted (laughs) (laughs) early on, but we got through it. And it it struck me uh, when we would tell these stories, um, Someone like um, a Steve Jobs from Apple, Um, Mm. you know, you probably have an iPhone or you have a smartphone. Mm -hmm. Um, Steve Jobs was adopted by a family who happened to live in Silicon Valley, whose uh, the father happened to have a little workshop in his garage working with lasers. Uh, There were neighbors uh, surrounding them who worked for HP. It was really the environment that nurtured Steve and just fed his curiosity and and his love for technology. And there, you know, and if he had been adopted by another family in a different state in a different area, you know, his life would have turned out very differently. And Mm. so that um, just became the idea, put, put all these stories together and their names, everybody would recognize, you know, Steve jobs, Nancy Reagan, Babe Ruth, Mm. um, Gerald Ford. Wow. Um, So that's kind of the, the genesis of that project. Oh, that's powerful. And, uh, you know, adoption is such an important theme in scripture, uh, that we've been adopted into God's family in Christ. I wonder being an adoptive parent, how has that helped you understand God's love in your own life? Like how are those connected for you? Yeah. In so many ways, um, you know, first just thinking that, 
Jesus was uh, adopted in the sense of, mm. you know, very in a very real way. I mean, his father, Joseph, was an adoptive dad, was not a biological dad. Mm. And in many ways, it's it's helped impress upon me the fact that if when I start maybe feeling uh, early on sort of a little bit of an outcast um, because I don't have a biological child, you think, well, if if the Lord deemed uh, the adoptive father of Joseph worthy of being the dad, earthly dad to the savior of the world, why should I feel as though uh, he's not going to acquit me of all mm. people? So in that case, it certainly is a, a, a very practical. And then from a sense of we're all adopted uh, into God's family, you know, adoption, the beautiful thing about adoption is when you adopt that child, they receive all the rights and privileges that are attached to your family. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's exactly what it means to be adopted into the family of, of, of God. Mm. So it's um, it's a great uh, reminder that uh, we're all adopted uh, if we're all uh, believers in Christ. That's so awesome. And I, I'm sitting here listening to you talk and hearing your uh, parenting heart and even your pastoral heart. And Paul, I, you know, for listeners out there who... I don't know, maybe God is pressing on their heart or has been kind of pressing on their heart, this idea of adoption. Um, but they aren't exactly sure, is this from God or is am I just imagining things? Do you have any words of encouragement for our listeners who might be considering or praying through an adoption journey? Well, um, I sure do. And I, if, if the Lord has put that in your mind, in your heart, I would run towards it. Don't run away from it. It mm-hmm. It seems overwhelming at first it, because in, there's so many steps to it. There's a lot of uncertainty attached to it. Um, but things work out and you, you just have to take one step at a time. I often tell people if, if you know, there's all kinds of reasons to be intimidated by it or to be scared of it, not the least of which might be financial. I often tell people never let money come in the way of um, the process that, Mm. you know, the government has wasted a lot of money on a lot of things, but one of the best ways uh, that they spend money is on the adoption tax credit. Wow. So that's going to help you make it happen. Uh, The foster care system, uh, there's really no financial problems there. Uh, You have to have a heart for that because you're going to be perhaps welcoming into your home, a child who's been through quite a lot. Mm. And um, you may feel that um, you're not equipped for it. There are a lot of there's a lot of help out there for people like you. And so um, I just, I'll tell you, I've found that the most difficult things in life are often the most fulfilling. And hmm. that's uh, looking back now, you can't connect the dots looking forward, but you, you can connect them looking backwards. And that's certainly the case when it comes to the adoption journey. Yeah, absolutely. And Paul, uh, as we kind of wrap up, I, I do want to speak, give you an opportunity to speak to those people. In the beginning of your story, you talked about your inability, your, you and your wife to have kids, and that led you down the adoption road. Right now, there, there might be a, a man or woman listening right now who that, that's their struggle and they're just heartbroken and they're really just looking for, you know, hope or anything. Could you speak to that person who's just grieving? Could you speak maybe a word of perspective or hope for them? Yeah. I mean, I empathize with them, uh, although I don't know them. I've been in their shoes. We've been in their place. Um, the Lord knows. He cares. He's, mm-hmm. He understands. He's listening to where you are and what you're going through. Um, the pain is real, and it's often silent. It's private. You often don't even want to talk about it. You may not want to go to church on Mother's Day mm-hmm. or be around a lot of people having kids. People make jokes about it. You know, there's something in the water when a lot of people get pregnant. And my wife used to think, well, I wish I were drinking that water, you know, and I, it's yeah. just so tough. Um, 
But the, the best thing I guess I can tell you is to just hang on and hold on and bring it to the Lord. He's, he listens and it's a tough season and, you know, you don't want to shower someone with platitudes. You just want to empathize with them and um, ask the question, would they consider um, the adoption process? Would they consider opening their heart to another uh, family's child? Um, you'd be surprised at how that would, that might heal the yeah. wound that is very real. Absolutely. Again, that's a great word. Thank you for that, Paul. Paul Batura is a vice president of communications for Focus on the Family, also the author of the book Chosen for Greatness, uh, How Adoption Changes the World. As a reminder, you can also hear Focus on the Family weekdays at 1130 a.m. right here on AM 1160 Hope for your life. Again, that's Focus on the Family every weekday at 11.30 a.m. right here on AM 1160. Paul, we always appreciate you coming on. Have a great Father's Day. Thanks for joining us. You too, Brian. Thank you. And Aubrey, have a great weekend. Thanks for being here. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. I'm Aubrey Sampson, joined by my co-host, Brian Fromm. And, you know, it's Father's Day coming up this weekend. Brian is a dad, and dads are known for having, um, I don't know. Wonderful humor. Wonderful (laughs) senses of humor. Okay, I'll let you say that. Wonderful sense of humor. Dad jokes have become like a thing in pop culture. And Brian, throughout this week, has actually been blessing us with (laughs) some, some gifts of dad jokes. And really what we've done is said, are they dad jokes? Meaning, are they funny? corny but funny or are they dud jokes like they're just really not good at all and Mm -hmm. we're going to talk about something serious here in a minute but we thought we needed we needed another dad or dud joke moment from brian for our listeners and for me so i haven't heard this yet brian's about to throw it my way yeah so first of all you saying culturally like the things are trending towards bad dad jokes like that's the most in line with culture i've ever felt like okay (laughs) it's finally coming back to me it's like here we go my people here we go Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh so my kids regularly i i'm two for two on these i felt very confident with the last two they were good they were good Uh, and and i have warned you that this one's not I'm I'm gumming I'm I'm worried about this one. I think that we're gonna miss for the first time, but I'm gonna try it anyway. Okay, I'm all own right. It. Here we go. Okay, here we go. Uh, so here's the question today: How does the moon cut his hair? <laughs> How? Eclipse it. <laughs> <laughs> oh wait, we might have won that one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Did I get it? Did I get it? I mean, I know that's probably the worst one, but I really liked that one. That's pretty good. Eclipse it. It took me a minute, too. I'm like, that's it. Oh, Eclipse. He clips. Oh, that's that's even like a little bit of a science lesson. I'm going to call that a dad joke. I think you won that. I think we might have to break this. This may tell you too much about me and my terrible sense of humor. So we might need to bring someone else in to really be the the judge (laughs) and arbiter of dad or dud jokes. But thank you for that, Brian. You and I both told our kids the past two jokes. And uh, yeah. Uh, they had a little less exuberant reaction than uh, than you did when I told them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my kids were kind of like, 
Cool. Mom. By the way, if you've missed any of Brian's dad or dud jokes, you just need to go back and listen to our podcast. That's right. You can ask Alexa, hey, Alexa, play the Common Good podcast. Too bad you can't say, hey, play Brian Fromm's jokes. We have to figure out a way to do that. We need to curate them in one spot. Yeah, we true. do. You can also uh, find us on the website. A- Wait, what's the website again, Brian? I can never remember. AM1160hope.com. No, hope. Just- 1160hope.com. <laughs> 1160hope.com. It's as simple as that. You can go back and listen to old episodes. <laughs> We're going to write it on your hands. We're going to need a tattoo of this. Um, and, yeah, funny. go back and find Brian's dad or dad jokes. And also go back and find some of the amazing interviews we've done this week and as we've been talking about the SBC. Well, that's right. Hey, can I tell you one more anniversary that today? Oh, yes. And then we're going to get into something much more okay. important. But we are okay. talking about commemorations. Today, 27 years ago today, the OJ Simpson Bronco <gasps> chase. Oh, I remember that. I can remember sitting in front of my parents' TV watching that Bronco chase. That thing lasted forever, too. Ever. And that was a lot of people look back. That was like the first reality TV moment where you didn't yeah. know. what was. That was also like the birth of CNN for some people. Like that was a watershed. Then, then that whole trial was a watershed cultural moment. Wow. Uh, and today, 27 years ago, it all kind of changed. It's kind of one of those where were you moments when this happened, the O.J. Simpson white Bronco chase, that slow chase through uh, Los Angeles. Crazy. It makes me feel so old, too. That does make me feel old. Wow. Okay. Well, I don't know really how to celebrate that, but That's we're going to transition into a yes. better anniversary. Two days from now is the anniversary of Juneteenth. And some of you might be saying to yourself, what is Juneteenth? I have mm-hmm. never heard of that. And so actually, we have a little audio. Um, this is actually something from Brain Pop, which my kids watch. So it is a kid's video explaining what Juneteenth is. Go ahead and take a listen. Juneteenth is short for June 19th. On that date in 1865, enslaved people in Galveston Bay, Texas, learned they were free. 2,000 Union troops showed up with the news. The Civil War was over, and so was slavery in the South. The news had taken a while to reach Texas, the westernmost state in the Confederacy. Juneteenth celebrates that day, when the last enslaved people in the South were set free. The Emancipation Proclamation had made it official. That was an executive order issued by Abraham Lincoln in the middle of the Civil War. It said that all enslaved people in the states, in rebellion against the United States, shall be then, thenceforward, and forever free. Meaning, it applied to the Confederate states, but not to the slave states that stayed in the Union. That's because Lincoln wanted to keep his allies in those states happy. Slavery continued there for months after the Civil War ended. The 13th Amendment outlawed it across the land in December 1865, a half year after Juneteenth. Okay, so Juneteenth basically is a historical event dating back to June 19th, 1865, when... um, enslaved folks in Texas finally learned that they were free. So the Emancipation Proclamation had actually declared January 1st, 1863, that all slaves were uh, in the South were free, but it took more than two years for the news to spread to Texas. And so it's a day when, when mm. sort of we say that the last group of enslaved people found out the news that they were free. And so, um, It's known as Juneteenth for June 19th. Some people call it Freedom Day, Emancipation Day. It's basically a day that all 
the Southern Black enslaved folks were finally free. And then slavery was actually outlawed as a nation about six months later. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's a, it's actually, you know, not everyone knows about it, but it actually is this really, really important holiday in American history. And um, some of the things, I don't know about you, Brian, but some of the things we do, like we're going to gather at a pool party with people from different ethnicities and just have a picnic and celebrate a lot of times throughout the nation's people, um, churches get together and do things. Often celebrations include red food, red velvet cake, red beverages, watermelon, barbecued uh, beef. And part of that is that's just the color associated with the holiday. Another thing you can do if you want to support Juneteenth is, of course, learn more about it. You can support Black-owned businesses. But I think, you know, two days from now, it's really important for us to to celebrate and remember this really massive day in American history. And actually, right now, I think, I just saw the news that Joe Biden signed a bill to try to make Juneteenth a federal holiday. I don't think to try. I think it makes it a okay, federal holiday. Okay, it's actually, yes. now it's officially a federal holiday. So yes. that's pretty exciting because offices will close. And soon, I mean, I think in the next few years, more people will learn what Juneteenth is. And um, I don't know. I like the idea of celebrating these meaningful moments in American history. Um, yeah. And I, I like that the next generation will know more about this really important day and I don't know. I think it's kind of fun to talk about. So I think I'm a good example here. You know, I grew up in a, um, you know, public school system. I grew up, you know, went to Wheaton College, all this. I think last year or the year before was the first time I ever even heard of this holiday. Yeah. And and I think that speaks to just, you know, just some certain holidays and events uh, you know about, some you don't, and, and kind of the growing scope of just learning our nation's history. And I think this is, it was passed in a very bipartisan way of 415 to 14. In oh, the house wow. I didn't know to, that. That's awesome. Yeah. To make this the 12th federal holiday. Uh, as you said, President Biden was scheduled or, or did sign the bill to, into law today. Uh, it's the first new federal holiday. What do you think the last federal holiday that was created was? It was just created. This is oh. the first here, this is my, this is such a big deal today. Oh. This is the first new federal holiday that has been created since 1983. Do you know, uh, do you have a guess as to what that federal holiday was? Uh, let me think. Let me think. No, I don't know. Christmas. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, in uh, 1983, that was the creation of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Oh, sure. That actually makes sense. Okay. Oh, how cool. See, I, so, I feel like this is good news. Yeah. So that's why this is a really big deal. It's not like they're creating federal holidays every year. You know what I mean? This yeah. is the first one since 1983. And so I think the biggest thing that you bring up is uh, if you're like, what in the world is this holiday? Google it. Read a little bit about it, learn. And I think that's that's the best way. That's the great starting point to celebration here. Just go. What is it that we're now celebrating? What is it that we're commemorating? And uh, just learn about it. So, yeah, uh, a new federal holiday, the 12th federal holiday for the first time since 1983. So invite some friends over, have a picnic, celebrate Juneteenth. Well, coming up next, what are some practical things we can do to share kindness and protect our mental health? You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, 
Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. I am Aubrey Sampson, joined by my co-host, Brian Fromm. And it is the end of the day, Thursday afternoon. Some of you are almost home to have dinner. Some of you are starting to look to the weekends. I know we still have Friday, but sometimes Thursday night feels like it's the beginning of the weekend. And uh, anyway, we've been thankful you've been with us today. So, Brian, I was watching Good Morning America. You're a big Good Morning America fan, right? Is that the show you want? No. What's I your show? I, I like Good Morning America, so I don't want to. But I what's your morning these, show you watch? I watch the Today Show. You watch the Today Show. Yes. Savannah Guthrie and Hoda Kotb. Those That's are my girls. That's your girls. Those, yeah. are, your, those are your ladies. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, okay. So I'm sorry about this, but I was watching Good Morning America. I like Good Morning okay. America. You, Michael Strahan. I mean, that's the New York Giants. Yeah. That's my football team. Yeah. So I, I, I like Good Morning America okay. as well. Okay. All right. So um, they had a little clip on their website with David Crowder, uh, who is, of course, the lead singer in the band that is just called Crowder. And uh, he's talking, I mean, it's kind of funny. He's talking about mental health, but he's also talking about being generous and how we can encourage other people. It's about two minutes of audio, but it's so worthwhile. I wanted everyone to listen to it. So here's what David Crowder says. Hey, what's up? It's Crowder, and I'm excited to share five things I do for my mental health, and I, and I think you'll have a great time uh, giving it a go as well. Firstly, what you can do is get on, get on your phone, get on the app, send somebody some donuts. Every, people love donuts. If you had a donut, they're wonderful. But then you, you get to know that you're not the one eating the donuts, and you feel wonderful about yourself, and your friend feels fantastic because donuts magically arrived. It's, it's incredible. Another thing you can do that's kind of crazy, but write, like handwrite a letter and send it to somebody. First of all, you're going to pick up a pen and be like, how do I use this? It's been a while. You'll reintroduce yourself to penmanship, and somebody's going to get a letter. You're going to figure out what stamps cost now. You know, who knows? Like, you know, are they $100? I don't know. How many stamps? Put more on than you think you you need. That's what what I do. Another thing you can do is call somebody you haven't talked to in a while. Um, You know, you just go through your phone and be like, ah, haven't hit up so-and-so. You're going to wind up catching up on stuff and you feel kind of you hang up and you're like, man, my day's better. I haven't talked to that person in, in forever. Or just call your mom. That, that works as well. Do this. I have my eye on some sneakers. I've been looking at these sneakers for a while. I'm like, man, I really want these sneakers. So I bought the sneakers and then I sent them to a friend. Like denied myself. It was incredible. It feels so good. And your friend's like, what's this for? And you're like, I don't know, I really wanted some sneakers and I thought you needed them more than me. I want to see them on you and when they show up and they're on your sneakers, you're like, man, it's great not to covet at all. Fifth thing I love to do is help somebody out in the yard. Like if you see your neighbor doing some yard work, maybe they're trimming their hedges, maybe they're washing their car, you know, give them a holler, say, hey, want me to help out? For me, I got super into power washing my driveway. Love power washing my driveway. Or the leaf blower. Pop over to your neighbors and give a hand, and it's a great way to get to know folks that are living right next to you, as well as uh, you know helping helping a friend out. So those are my five things I've been up to, making sure that my mental health is on par with what's good and positive in life, and I hope this is helpful. So that's David Crowder on Good Morning America telling us to buy donuts for everybody. What do you think about that, Brian? It reminds me of uh, what what keeps happening to me in drive-through lines, right? Of people oh. buying for me. Uh, that's not happened with donuts yet, but with drinks. Uh, no, I love, first of all, David Crowder is such a unique individual. Yeah. And besides loving his music. What did we learn the other day? He took a surfboard from Eddie Vedder or that something. <laughs> so amazing. Yes. Uh, but he's getting at, not surprisingly, a biblical principle here yeah. that, that oftentimes, 
when we think of our own mental health, our own contentment, our own joy, that that uh, the backwards nature of it is actually uh, that the best way, the best avenue towards those things is in giving. It is in being generous. It's not in hoarding. It's not in getting more. Mm -hmm. There's not anything uh, you know, fundamentally wrong with getting more nice stuff or doing something for yourself or whatever else. That's not the point here. Um, but the idea we see it throughout scripture and David Crowder here is talking about it about things like donuts and shoes. But, uh, one of the things all of us have to wrestle with in a society that tells us get more, get more, get more mm. is the Bible says give away more, give away more, give away more. Mm. And those are two very different pathways towards this idea of contentment. And we all have to ask ourselves, what do I actually believe will bring me the greatest amount of contentment? A lot of times when we talk about giving and generosity, we just think of it as almost like martyrdom, right? Like, oh, I have to do that. (laughs) Totally. In reality, the Bible says, no, that's the most self-serving thing you can do Mm. is to give away, is Mm. to that. It will lead to contentment. It will lead to joy. Uh, it will lead to these things that the accumulation of wealth and possessions and other things will not bring you. I think what becomes difficult is actually believing that's true to the point. Uh, it's what we talked about with uh, what was her name? Uh, Jeff Bezos's ex-wife. Yesterday. Right, right. Uh, it's what we talked about with her giving away billions of dollars. It's the question is what like ask it in the most self-serving way. What is actually going to bring me the greatest amount of contentment and joy? Hmm. And the answer biblically is generosity. And that's a really backwards, hard thing to believe. I know for me, I mean, I I love the moment when Crowder talks about the shoes he really, really, really wanted to buy because I'm kind of a shoe. I love new shoes. And so the fact that he's like, and I bought him and I gave him to someone else. And I feel like that to me is, is another way to, to sort of consider this conversation like if you're saying to yourself oh i really really want the new whatever it is you know to go oh okay do i want it enough to buy it for someone else Mm -hmm. and bless them and then you can make a decision like this will actually encourage another person maybe i don't need this thing or it could even even if you i feel like realize oh i'm not willing to buy it for someone else it sort of shows you your own selfishness and then you can kind of go oh i probably don't need this thing at all and again like you're saying it's okay to buy yourself donuts and shoes and things like that but the reality is it's that heart of generosity it's that heart of blessing other people it's that heart of not being materialistic of giving away what god has given you that ultimately brings the most blessing like you said brian and i do think it's even a conversation about where we find our contentment because sometimes for me you know like i said i like shoes i i'm a pretty typical woman i like to shop and i will sometimes have to stop and go okay what's going on in my soul right now Mm. is this good because i'm just delighting in good gifts you know or is this like am i feeling restless am i feeling discontent am i feeling like god is not providing for me am i feeling restless in some part of my life and therefore i'm trying to fulfill my those you know emotions through shopping when re- reality says or or uh goodness says i should go to god and ask for his provision i should be thankful for the things i have i just think this is a good sort of posture and attitude and heart check for all of us absolutely and and again for me it comes back to belief 
uh, to the level of action. Like, mm. do am I just good at preaching these things and mm. talking about these things, uh, or do do we go? You know what? I believe that so deeply that I'm going to look for ways to be generous with my money, with my time, with my you know my energy, whatever else it might be. Uh, or is it like something we kind of just talk about in the church and go, yeah, you know, yeah, this is it. And then go to kind of go about living like the rest of the world lives. I think this is kind of one of those rubber meets the road. What do we actually believe brings leads to contentment, leads to joy, leads to quote unquote, the good life for us? Yeah, that's good. And so I hope um, when I see you next week, Brian, or tomorrow, actually, Brian, tomorrow. I hope you have donuts for me. I feel like that's yes. the lesson in all of this is that Brian's bringing donuts to the office for I'm all of I'm generous us. with my dad jokes. That is what I'm generous <laughs> with. You are. You're generous with your dad jokes. Well, thanks, everybody, for joining us today on this Thursday afternoon. We can't wait to see you tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. We have a very special Father's Day show. We have a Father's Day quiz with you, Brian, and with a very special guest someone I'm really close to. So can't wait to have that person join us. And um, it's going to be a great day. We hope you have a great evening tonight. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life.